are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're doing something a little different than we normally do. Uh, we began two weeks ago uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew, reading a section at a time. I'll make a few comments, then we stop the uh, recording or pause it, and it gives us a chance to discuss that text. And then we move on. And um, I was a little optimistic the first time, thought we'd get through three chapters. Uh, I was hoping that because when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, I was hoping to get through all of it at once. I don't think that's going to happen. So I downshifted to maybe two chapters, depending on uh, the section. Uh, the parables may be a little more difficult. So we didn't quite make it to the baptism of Jesus. And so today we're going to pick it up at chapter 3 and try to get through chapter 4 up to the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're doing two things. One, it's a chance for us to discuss these texts. And the other part is that I want you to understand these texts as, as they were written to the communities that they were written. Uh, there is a tendency for us to usurp the uh, audience of the ministry of Jesus, uh, when he clearly states over and over and over, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That the Gentiles are included in that process is certainly true. But we treat it as if we go right from the gospel, Jesus' words, right to us, and then there we are. So as I said before, at the Sermon on the Mount, there were no Baptists, there were no Presbyterians, there were no Americans. It was the people of Israel who were hearing the remnant of Israel to hear the words of the Messiah to make disciples of the tribes that were dispersed, awaiting for the return. And then, as Paul says, the mystery of the gospel included the Gentiles in that. So we'll talk about how to apply these texts to ourselves by application and extension, not by means of replacement. So at uh, Matthew chapter 3, we begin with these words. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. I'm going to re-read that the way it should be read because the English Bibles uh, put the emphasis incorrectly. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself came, uh, had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food were locusts and wild honey. Jerusalem was going out to him and all of Judea and all the district of Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones... God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barns, but the, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now this first section, what's really important to keep in mind here, is that Matthew is going to keep driving us back through the ministry of Jesus to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is foundational for all of the Gospels. And Matthew is clearly setting that right up front. They each mention John the Baptist. They each mention this statement of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. This is tied into the notion that at the second coming, the uh, mountains will be brought low, the mountain of the temple will be raised up, and there will be a highway towards it, through the wilderness, uh, into Jerusalem. And so the prophecy is being mentioned, and John is identifying himself, and Matthew is identifying him as that. Now, he is functioning in clothing that triggers a reminder of Elijah. And so there is this idea that Elijah would come before the Messiah, and that is also triggered in, in these words. Now, John is baptizing, and you can see from all areas of Israel at the time, people are coming down to the Jordan River to be baptized of John. This idea of baptism is not new. The washing and the cleansing and the immersion of the hands or the body uh, in preparation of going from being unclean to clean. And in this case, of turning from walking too much in your sin towards obeying the Lord on the path of life is what John is doing. And as that happens, two groups come that he particularly recognizes. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees were separatists who believed in the Torah and the oral Torah. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels. They were very strict with regard to their obedience. And they particularly believed in the words of the prophets. Uh, but there were, by their own account, many within their group who were hypocrites. And they railed against uh, their fellow Pharisees who were uh, not following God as Jesus would later do himself. That's not to throw the whole group out. In the second group, the Sadducees, these were the priests. The priests did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe that the prophets mattered. And they didn't care much about the oral law. Their view was the Torah and the sacrificial system and the temple. And that's where their focus was. And they didn't want anybody to cause trouble with Rome. Because once you're dead, you're dead. And therefore, they are the ones. It's going to not be the Pharisees. It's going to be the Sadducees and the chief priests who will ultimately go against Jesus and have him killed. With the idea that this will be the end of it. Uh, of course, resurrect the Pharisees are right about this one. There is a resurrection of the dead and the Lord will come there. Now what John says to them is, uh, there is a wrath, there is a judgment to come. This is something that we need to think about 
Many Christians think there is no judgment to come. Jesus died on the cross. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. It's all done. And I can live any way I want. And there won't be any problem. The Bible's very clear. And Paul's very clear to the Gentiles in Corinthians. That we will all stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. And we will give an account for the things done in the body. Whether good or evil. And, and Jesus says that we will give an account for every idle word. That's a verse that scares me. So he says, look, if you really get that there's a judgment coming, and you're not just coming to show up, you need to show fruit of your repentance. This is an important biblical doctrine that we need to be aware of. I'm sorry is not repentance. Acknowledging what we've done, these people were confessing their sins, acknowledging the sin and turning from it to not repeat it and to struggle against it and in cases making restitution is what's going on here. Where's the fruit? Where's the proof that you are actually repentant? This is not a say the magic words and go to heaven kind of gospel that uh, John is speaking about. Uh, so he says, and don't give me this, you're children of Abraham. Because God can make children of Abraham from the stones. After all, we are made from the dust of the ground, right? He can breathe in. He can, he can do that. And of course, Paul will tell us that we, Gentiles, are also children of Abraham by faith. Now, we're not children after the flesh. But if we have the same belief in God, God Abraham believed in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. We also will have that. So then he says, I want you to know that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. The judgment is near. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a very common biblical notion that growing to fruitfulness is proof of our uh, struggle towards obedience. He says, I will baptize you with water, but there is one coming and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Theologians vary on this, but it appears from the context that the Holy Spirit is that which he has given to those who believe him. We see that at Pentecost. And the fire baptism is that fire of judgment that will ultimately burn up that which is uh, chaffed. So he says... His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear uh, his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that's a great verse, but it's a verse that most of us don't understand, and our children won't understand. So let me do a quick explanation, then we'll turn off the, the uh, we'll stop the tape, and then we can have some discussion. Now, if you've ever seen winnowing, uh, the... The harvest is brought and there's a winnowing fork. It's just a stick to grab the wheat or whatever, barley or whatever they're doing. And they throw it up into the air. And when they throw it up into the air, the breeze is coming by. And the chaff, the stuff that's not worth anything, is lighter than the wheat. And so the wind blows the chaff to, away. And then what falls down is the wheat. And then he'll take it and do it again. And that separates it. So you've got this idea of the Spirit of God separating the genuine from the other. And of course then the chaff is then burned up 
because it's good for fire, but it's not good for food, right? So the idea is that there will be in the judgment in the last day a separation of those who are uh, wheat, those who are genuine uh, believers and have fruit, because uh, that's the point of the wheat, have fruit who will be brought into the barn, into the kingdom, and the others will be thrown from that place and ultimately will be burned. So it's important that we understand that many of the illustrations in the Bible are for people at the time who did these things daily. They would walk all the time and see a person separating the wheat from the chaff and they'd know exactly what that is. This is not great spiritual language. It is spiritual language. But the idea is it is common experiences that the people would have. So at this point, we're going to pause the uh, tape. And if you have something you want to... This one we may not need to talk too much about. We just addressed this a few weeks ago in our liturgy. Then Jesus arrived from uh, Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered, said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water, and behold, the heavens were open. John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now this text uh, is one of the texts that's often used in Christian theology to try to explain the Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, which is an explanation of the fact that there is only one God, and yet the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are um, uh, described in deity terms. So that doctrine is there. That's not what this text is trying to teach, though it, it gives this notion that we have the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, clearly pointing back to Noah, uh, and the uh, the dove and the peace, uh, the the passing beyond judgment, the salvation beyond judgment. We have the voice of the Father testifying of the Son. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Certainly Jesus doesn't need to confess sins and be baptized and show fruit of repentance. So what is He doing? It is not uncommon for the prophets in the in the Scriptures to, on behalf of Israel, to engage in certain behaviors. And in doing that, they are fulfilling all righteousness in that sense. And that's what is going on here. Uh, we'll get a little more as we look at the next section. Uh, but let's go ahead and stop it at this point. See if we make it. <laughs> Chapter 4 then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. I always think, no doubt. <laughs> right. um, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city 
and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So what we have here is uh, Matthew really putting several things in sequence that Jews would immediately catch. We have what we talked about before, the killing of the infants when Jesus is born, like Moses. We have the genealogies telling us about son of David and son of Abraham. And then we have the statement of uh, him going into Egypt. You recall Abraham's seed went into Egypt, and then they came out of Egypt. After they came out of Egypt, they were baptized unto Moses in the sea, Paul says. We have Jesus being baptized, and immediately they are tested in the wilderness. So Jesus is in the wilderness being tested. And if you've read Exodus, you know the story of Israel. God says, ten times I've tested you, and ten times you failed. I'm going to leave you here and take your children in, right? But what we have here is Jesus tempted, and in all points, not falling to the sin. Now, we can talk about the issues of the temptations. Uh, Some of them are related to physical desire, uh, the hunger. Some of them are to uh, the glory of uh, uh, the world. Uh, That's certainly we're tempted by the flesh and the world. And then, of course, the more subtle one that Satan does, where he tries to get a proof text. And what... What Satan loves to do is twist scripture so that we think we're obeying God. That's what he did to to Eve. He twists it just a little so that you think you're obeying God. If a temptation says, ignore God and don't do what God says, that's not likely to be a temptation to somebody who is trying to follow God. But someone who is trying to follow God, who gets the idea that I can follow God, kind of have my cake and eat it too... Uh, is is part of this temptation. Ultimately, you'll notice Jesus' response is, it is written. In other words, to know the Word of God, to have it buried in your heart so that you know what it is, gives you the wherewithal to resist Satan in that sense. So we'll pause it at that point. Anything you want to back on? All right, so... The next step is that Jesus begins his ministry. Uh, It says that when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew from Galilee. Now, we read in other texts that this is not immediately. So what is going on is Matthew is not telling us everything in order. He's emphasizing some things. So his emphasis here is the John now is out of the picture 
And uh, Jesus then is going to withdraw to Galilee. Why is he doing that? Because uh, Herod is going to ultimately kill John. And Jesus is uh, staying out of harm's way in that sense. So what he does is he uh, leaves Nazareth and settles in Capernaum. That's the city that Peter is from, which is by the sea, uh, the Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, this is where Matthew wants to give us some insight. This is to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Notice Isaiah again. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The other side of the Galilee was the area of the Gentile cities. Um, He says, uh, those people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So, Jesus is going to establish his ministry, not in Judea, not down where Jerusalem is, but in the Galilee area. Uh, His disciples are Galileans, and they have an accent. Now, the Judeans believe that the Galileans were Hicks. So they're not going to think much of this group from the north. Uh, because if, if you really uh, are serious about God, you live in Judea near Jerusalem. Uh, and so there's that kind of a, a subtle background thing that we're being given information of. Then it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to say one thing about that, then we'll stop it. Um, the statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is similar to John's message. And it is this notion to Israel that you need to turn around. You need to change. You're on the wrong path. You need to be on the pathway of life. The kingdom is here. Now, it's here and it's not yet. And we'll see that kind of tension But the idea is, you're not supposed to be waiting for it to come in its fullness. You're supposed to be preparing for it to come in its fullness. Because in that sense, the kingdom of God is among you. And it's near. And and it's not live this life and then go to heaven. Live this life in anticipation of the kingdom to come. Not in heaven. The kingdom of heaven means the kingdom of God. And it is the restoration of Israel... And the removal of Rome and all of that. And the idea is that the Messiah will one day sit on the throne of David and Israel will be the head of the nations. That's the mindset of the people. That's the message that's coming. Turn around and start living according to the covenant because the kingdom is about to happen. And, in some sense, it's here. So, we'll pop that. Okay, anything uh, you want to add or say there? And uh, we'll be done. Uh, As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now let me, let me tell you, these four brothers who are fishermen are disciples of John the Baptist. And we, they have already been told... At the baptism, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So what Matthew is giving us, he's not giving us any of that background. The other Gospels do. He's simply letting us know that Jesus has now assembled his, uh, his disciples. And he's naming the two sets of brothers because three of those brothers become primary disciples. Peter, James, and John. Okay. Now, Andrew, I think in this sense, represents the rest of them. Uh, but Matthew is giving us the notion that Jesus has now assembled his witnesses. Those witnesses had to see his baptism. Because remember in the book of Acts, when they're replacing Judas, uh, they have to pick someone who was with them from the baptism of John to the resurrection. And so I think that that's what Matthew's doing. So then he says... Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, good news of the kingdom. This is not, come to me and be saved individually. It's about the kingdom coming. And he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, because that's what's going to be in the kingdom. There won't be sickness. There won't be uh, these problems. And news about him spread throughout all Syria... And they brought to him those who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So now Jesus is reaching not only the Jews in the, in the Holy Land proper, but, but the word is going from synagogue to synagogue throughout the diaspora in Syria and Jordan, and people are now coming, this guy can heal the sick, this guy is talking about the kingdom, perhaps he's the son of David. And so what we're going to see is, they're going to gather in large numbers, and Jesus is going to teach them. Matthew's going to give us a sample sermon, I think probably a, um, a major part of what Jesus was repeatedly teaching in the synagogues and in those frameworks. But we'll... See that next time. I just want to remind you that these are predominantly Jews who are coming to Jesus. And so his words are to Israel, not to just anybody who's out there. And we'll see that whenever a Gentile tries to get in there, Jesus will kind of push them back. He won't completely reject them, but he kind of backs them up because his focus is on Israel. So we'll shut that. We're done with that. Any final questions or thoughts?